Every nation in the USSR took from Japan or the Nazis was converted over to Stalinism in the post-war period. Top-down puppets were appointed and democracy was only a charade. Most were as brutal as Stalin, though a few were somewhat less. They all utilized secret police, the worst being the Stasi Germany. The KGB with Gestapo brutality truly was a totalitarian dictatorship and everyone was watched. Only North Korea under Kim Jong-il and Cambodia under Pol Pot got to this level of horror. Intellectuals were persecuted and killed. Most places were worse because the leaders knew that they didn't really hold the power. Moscow did and had to tighten the screws and make people tighten their belts for the USSR. Living standards went down in many areas all while living standards for Soviet citizens went up post-Stalin. Moscow under Stalin kept a close grip on those nations just as he did his own. The only exception in the Eastern Bloc was Yugoslavia, which was able to maintain its own autonomy and its own personal brand of communism that in many cases allowed for nearly free markets at one point, just not allowing capitalism. And by capitalism we mean the Marxist definition of a capitalist, which is someone who uses their money to own the means of production to skim off the labor of the workers to make more money without actually working themselves. Stalin was angry at Tito for not becoming his puppet like the rest of the Eastern Bloc and was able to leverage with the West so he didn't have to align with either the East or the West and still stay communist. Yugoslavia warmed and thawed with each new leader of the USSR, first thawing with Khrushchev and then cooling with Brezhnev. Yugoslavia and Titoism are their own complex subjects that would require their own videos. They just were spared as puppets of Stalin. One place we didn't mention until now that became socialist was one that surprised me, and that was Mongolia. Being sandwiched between two communist nations, I'm surprised it wasn't obvious to me. With the collapse of the Republic of China and the rise of the warlord period, Mongolia gained its independence and declared itself a socialist nation under the protection of the USSR. This founding was a year after Stalin gained power, and he rigged the elections. In 1928, Stalin demanded they collectivize agriculture, which wrecked their economy, causing areas to rise up against the Communist Party government. The Soviet Union sent troops and supplies to the Communist Party government and crushed the rebellion, starving them in enemy areas until they gave up. Mongolia was then criticized by the Soviet Politburo for implementing agriculture the exact same way the Soviets had, showing that lovely doublespeak Stalinism was so famous for. This required them to take a different tactic. The Mongolian government was also subject to the Great Purge, and the many Buddhist institutions were crushed, making them as democratic as Stalinism always is. During World War II, Mongolia was a big supplier of war clothes to the troops, and after the war worked with the PRC until tensions built up between the Soviet Union and China. China always wanted to expand and incorporate Mongolia, just as they did with Inner Mongolia, so Mongolia sided with the USSR in the conflict. The nation got incredibly brutal and authoritarian in the 80s until a new leader embraced Gorbachev's reforms. The Eastern Bloc nations were utterly taken over by Stalin, though the history is one I don't know enough about to go into other than Hungary had an uprising that ended after the gunning down of protesters that tried to establish a Western-style democracy in 1956, and Czechoslovakia went through a period called the Prague Spring in 1968, where they tried to embrace Leninism and democracy and free speech, but both were crushed even though Stalin was no longer alive. Hungarian violence had scared the Soviets enough of the Eastern Bloc destabilizing that anything not Stalinist was not cool. They sent in tanks and crushed both revolutions, which is why Soviet stands who rationalize Stalinist atrocities are referred to as tankies. 
After the reign of terror in France, the conservatives took over and started expanding war to bring republicanism to other nations, including the Netherlands and part of what is now Italy. They were first greeted as liberators until they realized that the French were only bringing liberty, fraternity, and equality in name only, and they were just puppet states, where fees were being extracted forcefully to help pay for their liberation. That was a similar issue with the Eastern Bloc and other Stalinist nations we'll talk about. Even after Stalin, Khrushchev and Brezhnev didn't actually care how the satellite states kept order just so long as they did. In spite of being communists, they were still very much Russians, and as I explained in my video on the Gerizimov Doctrine, Russian defense has always depended on keeping and maintaining buffer states as they have no natural geographic defenses like mountains. So they don't care how the Eastern Bloc stayed intact, they just cared more that it did, and in many cases it was brutal. It's why Ukraine leaving the Russian sphere of influence and leaning toward the West freaked Putin out so much, though with nukes there's a lot less to fear of a land war in Russia, but Putin can't show any signs of weakness. In 1949, North Korea declared its socialist nationhood. However, the person the Soviet Union trotted out to be their leader was not Cho Man-sik, a non-violent socialist leader that lived in Korea during Japanese occupation who was inspired by Tolstoy and Gandhi, but a doughy, bougie admin guy who hadn't lived in Korea most of his life and spoke Russian better than he spoke Korean. This man gave himself the name Kim Il-sung. The reason for this was that Stalin soon came to realize that Cho Man-sik had zero intention of being another Soviet puppet like the Eastern Bloc and had no intention of following Stalinism at all. Kim had essentially bribed his way into favor with booze up the ranks and so the USSR essentially forced this guy who was barely culturally Korean onto the people creating mythologies around him of battles he fought. That was just the beginning of the myth making of Korea and from then on he ruled as a little Stalin in his nation. Cho Man-sik was most likely executed in 1950. In 1948 and 1949 respectively, the USSR and then the US pulled out forces leaving the Korean Peninsula alone. However, there were suspicions of the South invading the North, so the North asked the Soviet Union for help, pulling a preemptive invasion. The North pretty much overcame the South and the Soviets blocked any movement from the UN to condemn it. The US decided to invade to take it back. They pushed their way to the North Korean territory until the Chinese army came in and pushed them down to the border where an armistice in 1953 was signed. Korea is still technically at war as the peace treaty was never signed. According to people who have escaped, one method of social control was that if you dared act up or disobey, not just you, but your family for three generations would be imprisoned. There are confirmed prison sites and are one of the few nations with more prisoners per person than the US, so there's possible truth in this. Sadly, the myths surrounding the hermit nation are so foggy that truth about the nation is nearly impossible to know, and is even worse in the US as our journalists have to get most of their info through Chinese, Korean, and Japanese sources and may not understand the context, including both stories where Kim Jong-un had his uncle torn apart by a hundred hungry dogs and everyone in North Korea were forced to wear a Kim Jong-un style haircut. Both of these were from Korean satire outlets, similar to The Onion, but American reporters didn't know that, similar to how we laughed when North Korea reported that The Onion ranked Kim Jong-un as sexiest man of the world. Kim's uncle, from what we can tell according to intelligence, is alive and doing fine. Sadly, people who defect from North Korea often are pretty much on their own after their government stipend runs out, living in poverty, as no one wants to hire them because of their North Korean ties and lack of training in more modern fields. So they sell their stories to journalists 
journalists can get more money, the crazier the stories they tell. So what we know about North Korea is little. Since then, myths made up were the entire basis of the DPRK, and the lies kept getting bigger and bigger. Kim Il-sung died around the collapse of the Soviet Union, and his son Kim Jong-il took over at the very worst time possible. The nation was starving, and North Korea became the most totalitarian state possible. Think East Germany, but with starvation. By all accounts, Kim Jong-il was an alcoholic and a terrible leader. The myth-making got so bad that Kim was essentially elevated to an all-powerful god, and kids said that they believed that he could read their thoughts and was always watching them like the Christian god. With Kim Jong-il's death in 2011, his son was named successor. He was secretly schooled in Switzerland and from what many can tell, has been leading the nation much better than his dad, downgrading them from a totalitarian nation to a strong authoritarian one, still very Stalinistic though. Kim was able to finish the bomb, something his father always wanted, and appears to now have that out of the way as a defense from the West, and is putting his time and energy into focusing on domestic issues. Journalists appear to think that North Koreans who are working outside the nation for the nation are genuinely excited by the changes in North Korea. There is a black market in goods that Kim was allowing for a bit, but now appears to be cracking down a bit on, and flash drives are super easy to smuggle in now, and people are eating up Western media, such as the show Friends. Where's North Korea going? Who knows, they may stay as isolated as they can, or they may take the China model of opening up to markets. They may stay isolated. They're almost certainly staying authoritarian for the next few decades, even though they're in talks with South Korea for some sort of reunification. But how that looks, who knows. And as awful as Kim Il-sung was, South Korea was essentially a pro-Western authoritarian dictatorship until 1987. There are few good guys on any side here. Seeing what the Korean Peninsula goes through from here will be quite fascinating, and it might lead to a power-sharing one-state-two-systems method like China currently has with its economic exclusion areas. That remains to be seen. To be honest, it's really hard to discover the truth about socialism, communism, and anarchism. Both the capitalists and the communists use propaganda, each biased in favor of their side and very uncharitable to the other side, often not representing them or their arguments as the other side sees it. Pretty much always a straw man. If I have said anything that you can debunk, please let me know, and if it's dramatic enough, I will upload a new video to cover it. So as always, thank you all for watching this as a video or listening to this as a podcast, which I'm sure was completely uncontroversial to anyone, especially to the YouTube monetization team. So if you found this useful, please donate to my Patreon. Just a reminder that I'm Anubis2814 on YouTube, and I have almost 700 videos on my channel that I've made over the past 11 years on religion, science, psychology, and politics. Please go check them out, and if your site has the option, like, rate, review, and comment. A special thanks goes out to Kendall Copperberg, Ogrel, Elias Garcia Guevara, and Joe Taylor for their $10 or more Wapawet level donations. I'm always humbled by the fact that they find my work worth funding and worth driving me forward. Thank you all. Please consider donating to my work if you can, and thank you all for listening.